0: Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Leventer. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we get to speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. So you have probably heard of the business model canvas. If you haven't, you can quickly go to Google and type that in. It's maybe one of the most influential modern day templates for developing new or existing business models. And the canvas initially created by Alexander Osterwalder in 2008, as part of a PhD thesis has morphed into an entire business called strategizer co-founded by today's guest, Alan Smith. Strategizer is today a content beast with best-selling books, technology platforms and apps, online training, in-person workshops, and of course, the business model canvas itself, which has been used now by millions around the globe. The books alone have sold over 2 million copies in 40 plus languages. And in this episode, Alan tells his story of how he went from the agency world to an entrepreneur offering arguably the most simple, practical, and effective business tools in existence today. So... Without further ado, here again is my great chat with Alan Smith. Alex's work with respect to the business model canvas, um, which began in 2008, and then of course the origins of Strategizer date back to 2010 uh, when you guys co-founded the business, how did you guys hook up, and what's the story behind? Um, I guess how you founded each other and, and founded the business.
1: It kind of makes sense to start the story like right before that, and it it even goes back to before you know 2008. Like Alex's work on the business model canvas, you know, he was doing that work in school. Like that was his PhD, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, while you know, we actually met in 2008, exactly 10 years ago. Like it was October, um, 10 years ago. And the context was, you know, at the time, you know, I was running a design agency. And, you know, before that, I had worked at an agency downtown. And I just felt like it was a crappy place to work. I felt that everyone there was super talented. I felt like the clients that we had were amazing. You know, we had BMW, we had Nike, Nintendo. We had all these like big names that, you know, if you drop them, people would be like, wow, you guys build Nike.com. Like, yeah, we do that. Um, It was cool, right? Um, It wasn't the most meaningful work in the world, but there was, there was, opportunity to do really beautiful, creative work there. And it wasn't getting done. So then I began the movement, you know, based on that, you know, basically insight. And so it was me and my business partner, Pat Keenan. We were both basically six months out of design school at the time. And he had the sort of same experience at an advertising agency he was working at. And we basically got one client. I think it was like a $3,000 job and we had $500 in the bank. And I was like, this is too easy. We just got like six months worth of living expenses covered. (laughs) Like, this is so easy, right? We're going to be, you know, swimming in cash in no time. And we're going to be doing the work that we actually want to do. And we're going to have the opportunity to build an agency where other people can do the same thing. And so we started, we started the movement and we started growing the agency and the, the sort of the thing that we didn't know what was going to happen, so the sort of surprise, we set out to do one thing, and then another thing happened, which was we kept having ideas for products. We started coming up with ideas for businesses. Um, we didn't see them as businesses, we just saw them as products, because we were really fresh on that like design, guys who build and code stuff mindset. Mm-hmm. And so we just saw problems and product solutions that we could bring to the world, that basically clients were bringing to us, you know? Um, so we were launching these products and they were just failing like one after another. And it was because they didn't have a business engine behind them. And so I was sort of failing and I was thinking like, we're doing something wrong, Pat. Like, what are we going to do here? I got to learn something about business. I kept thinking, maybe I should go back to school for an MBA. Um, do you have an MBA?
0: I do, but you can shit on it.
1: I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you that other people shit on it and told me that I should never do that. And it's a waste of my time. And so I was like, Okay. I took their advice because I trusted them um, and I wasn't sure I wanted to spend all that time on like learning business. Um, And they said, you should just go to this thing. There's this guy, he's doing this thing. It's kind of like design thinking. You're going to like it. It'll be a good start. And that's where, you know, I I spent 100, 100 bucks. I went to this workshop. Alex was just sort of starting to teach the business model canvas. He was fresh off of his PhD. The canvas looked a little bit different at that point in time. And I remember walking in the door and seeing it on the wall. And sort of like seeing the stickies go onto it and thinking like, oh my God, this is like, this is the language that I've been looking for. This is the thing that could help us make all these like failed business ideas succeed. And even more than that, I was thinking this should be software. This should be something like Adobe creative suite, you know, cause I was coming from that design background again. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this should be Adobe creative suite for business design. There's no software for business people, right? Like all we really had was PowerPoint and excel. And there was nothing to actually help us develop a business idea um, and sort of put rails on that. And this felt like it was it. And so uh, that's how I met Alex. And after that, I found out he was interested in doing a book. I went to his blog right afterwards. And he was interested in doing a different kind of book. And I said, dude, if 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 you're going to do that book, you're going to need my help. And we had a great call. And I think at the end of the call, we both said, you know, I think this is going to be a good exchange. And uh, here we are still working together 10 years later.
0: Uh, so many questions and directions, um, we could go when you're identifying these problems w- with these products that you're working on at the movement, the product ideas in, in some cases must've been really good, but you're saying the engine wasn't there to scale them up. Is that what was missing?
1: That was exactly it. And you know, we just didn't really know that much about marketing. Like we didn't know how to acquire customers. We didn't know really that much about customer service. Basically think about like, if you're an entrepreneur and you hired a design studio today to handle building the product, right? Like, you know, like a product agency, you know, sort of tech design guys. Um, you have to do a lot more beyond, you know, what what they're doing. And we didn't know any of that stuff, right? Like, we didn't know anything. We, we didn't know how to sort of really design a clear revenue stream or, you know, get people to convert. Uh, we didn't know anything about trials. We didn't, like, none of that stuff, man. Yeah, like, there was nothing beyond basically, like, the value proposition, the core product and uh the other thing. And we just we didn't invest in it. So I think the other part is too, you know, some founders, even if they don't have the experience from early days, they understand the importance of that. So maybe they they focus on the right thing first. Like the product matters, right? The problem matters. But so does all the other stuff. We just didn't see value in that. Like we were just too dumb. Like we just we didn't get it, man.
0: You meet Alex, you're obviously inspired by his work. And you, you mentioned that if you're gonna do the book Then let me help you with it kind of thing. How does this become a business? And and when do you decide to pivot over from the movement and say, okay, so I've worked on this agency for the last five, six years. Now it's time to jump over to Strategizer. There's way more opportunity here. This is the vision. You know, Alex is my co founder. He's the guy. Like, how did that shift happen? It was
1: kind of like a it was a really gradual shift, to be honest. It wasn't like I'm I think there actually was one moment, but it's not as clean as you might think the way that it happened was we, we decided to wind down the movement because we never really, again, like we just weren't paying attention to the right things. It was, it was our first real business, you know, out of school, you know, I worked on a bunch of other hustles before that, but as far as like our first real business, we never grew it to the point where, you know, we could sell the agency or anything like
0: that. You're only as good as your last, I guess, project in a way.
1: Yeah, basically. And, you know, we had, you know, added employees and, you know, figured out a whole bunch of stuff there. But uh, we we hadn't figured out how to sell or like extract ourselves from the business, um, partially because that wasn't even something we knew we needed to do at the time. Again, like we just we didn't get it right. Moving forward, you know, I was Alex and I were thinking, okay, well, maybe there's an experiment here. Right. Like if this is a method that people are really going to use. So we finished the book in about end of 2009 launched it early 2010, sort of for self-published edition. And it was starting to gain some traction like in that year it did really well. And then we signed over to Wiley, the publisher. And we were like, well, if this is a method people are really going to use and we both want to build software, let's start with something small. We'll build an iPad app. And the iPad was just sort of coming out 2010, right? Mm -hmm. And we figured, well, maybe there's an opportunity for like a touch, you know, interface thing. And this could be cool, right? This could be really cool. Let's do it. So we built this iPad app and launched it. And it started to work. And I do remember actually, You know, there was one day where I, I remember sitting in the boardroom at Center for Social Innovation on Spadina Street here in Toronto. And I kind of had to make a decision and I realized I couldn't work on all three of these projects anymore. One of them had to become more full-time. And I talked about it with my wife a little bit later on that day and uh, just said, okay, I guess I have to sort of go all in on this thing now. Um, and at that point in time, it was there was enough traction there. We weren't quite sure what the future looked like, but we did have a vision for it, and that's what made me choose choose that project and and choose
0: strategizer. as you described, so you had two other side hustles in this one. Do you think that like that's a good way for people to discern whether or not they should pursue something, or should they be kind of all in out of the gate, see you know give themselves a time frame, say six, twelve months, if it fails, then jump over to something else? like how do you see it? In retrospect,
1: I'd say for me back, I wish I would have been all in on one by going um, all in and being really systematic about it. Like we weren't that systematic back then. We didn't like the lean startup hadn't been written design, like designing and testing assumptions and hypotheses is something that was really kind of new, you know, back then. And we had to let things play out over a period of time, like collecting this evidence in this really slow way and knowing what I know now. I believe that it's a way better choice to sort of go all in on an idea and be really focused and systematic about what you're learning to tell if that idea is going to be a success or not. Um, that's, that's my current belief is to just try to accelerate the process by using good tools and systems.
0: Okay. So good segue, um, tools and systems, business model canvas, um, initially I think proposed by Alex and, 2008. This is now so so fast forwarding to 2018. This is, you know, the one I, I want to say like this is the go-to one pager for any entrepreneur. Like I might be reaching a bit when I say that, but it's largely a true statement. How do you explain like the canvas to a layperson who's never heard of it and what do you think makes it so compelling?
1: So, I like to ask the question, you know, what's your business model, right? Cuz you hear that all the time like talking about a new business idea with somebody, ultimately anybody who knows anything about business and even people who don't, (laughs) right. are going to say, Hey, well, what's the business model? Right. And then you ask yourself, well, okay, well, wait a minute. Like, would my partners answer this question in the same way? Am I actually going to be talking about the things that this person's actually asking about when they ask that question? What the heck is a business model? I know it's really important to the organization, but you know, I actually don't have a clear definition of that. And I don't know if I can answer that question of what's the business model, you know, clearly. So for me, you know, that just asking the question, like, well, what's the business model? And, and pointing out that, you know, this is something that people are really, really fuzzy on. And that, you know, the business model Canvas helps you get clear on that, on one piece of paper and, you know, a very short period of time. Every new business idea is part wrong, right? And now that you've got it mapped, you can start to identify areas that are more likely to be wrong than others. And you can start to iterate and say, OK, well, what do we need to learn um, to either prove or disprove this component? You know, whether you're looking at the desirability component of it, you know, the value proposition, the problem uh, that you're solving for the the feasibility. Is this something you can actually build um, or the viability? Is this an area where you're actually going to be able to make money and then sort of diving into the subcomponents of those of you know, how are you going to acquire people and you know, how are you going to retain them? And what's the technology look like? What kind of partners do you have, et cetera, price points, everything. And so by creating that shared language and then giving people sort of like a yardstick and making something explicit makes it so much easier to a- advance it.
0: Let me describe the the way that the canvas looks, um, for, for the listeners that have never seen it. So it's very, also it's, it's very, um, simplistic it's it's sort of like this template with square boxes and there's nine sections as you mentioned so key partners key activities key resources the value proposition customer relationships channels customer segments and then of course the all-important cost structure and revenue stream uh, components of the model so when you are working with entrepreneurs and startups where do most businesses fall short on this grid like if they think Oh yeah, Alan. We've we've got our we've got our business model tight. Like, where do you see gaps? Typically,
1: definitely one of the most important questions to ask, and such a good question, Adam. So generally, uh, so what we saw when people started to use the tool, like in reality, we thought it would it would look a certain way. And then what we saw was that the most confusion was really around the customer and the value proposition. Hmm. And if you think about, you know, that concept of product market fit, which I'm sure you've heard before, right? There's this idea that, you know, if, 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 if you don't have a product that customers are interested in, it doesn't matter how interesting your acquisition channels are or how cool your cost structure is or how you've got this amazing partner who can manufacture this thing or how awesome your patent is and... You, your team and your brand and all that kind of stuff. Right. If it's not a product that people want, if it's not solving a problem that, that people really have, that's that's basically the biggest problem. Um, and we saw the most confusion around that, which is why we actually had to go on and uh, sort of help develop the value proposition canvas. And so we developed that as sort of like a tool to help zoom into those two building blocks. And we said, OK, well, people need more clarity around this. So we looked at all of the different sort of tools out there for mapping customers, um, for mapping value propositions. And we we found that it was the same thing with the v- business model canvas, right? And the term business model, which is, you know, what's your value proposition? You know, something people ask all the time, but that's a pretty nebulous word, isn't it? Like value proposition. What is that? What makes up a, a value proposition? You know, can you define yours, you know, today? What we wanted to do was the same thing, was to create a shared language that would sort of capture the components of the value proposition. And what we realized was, you know, this aspect of product market fit was so important that it always needed to be kept in context with the customer. And the biggest mistake a lot of these tools make is they extract it and try to make it separate, where, you know, a value proposition exists for a customer with a problem, and that you want to see the two things, you know, kind of side by side. That's the most important part. So. You know, to answer your question, I think that's the first spot. Really, it's the problem. You know, what's do you have a clear understanding of the customer problem? What needs to be solved? That's sort of number one. And a lot of people screw that up because they're just so stoked about their idea. You know, what's your solution? You've heard this before, you know, many times. This isn't new, but you know, we saw the same thing, you know, when we got into it, you asked me what was my experience. That's exactly what we saw. And then from there, you know, the the next thing people screw up, and this is what I screwed up in my early businesses. Where do you get customers for this thing? You know how do you market it? How do you acquire it? So that's sort of like going through the channels you know box. And then how do you retain customers? You know if they sort of you know come in and out constantly, then is, is that really a business that's going to succeed long term, right? Um, not so much. And then from there, you know, usually the viability is the next component that goes wrong. Are you actually able to charge enough money for this thing uh, based on the cost structure? And then lastly is the area where most people focus first, which is the the feasibility, which is, you know, can we build this, the technical risk that this thing can actually get built? You know, not many businesses fail because they built, they, they weren't able to build the technology. So many more businesses fail because they built something that nobody cared about. It's, you know, and it's not because of the competition either. Everybody freaks out about competition. Hey, where's, where's competition in this business model canvas? It's like, well, that's separate, you know, you can't control that. And, you know, most, most businesses when they fail, it's, you know, it's not, it's not murder, it's suicide. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you screw up your own stuff.
0: Okay. So I, I will come back to the competition because I have a question on that. But, but first the value proposition canvas, which you mentioned, sort of a derivative of the original business model canvas. Um, you have others, right? Now you have other um, derivations of of the templates. What's the process you and your team go through to uh, develop and extract and create these other canvases?
1: I'll say straight up front is, you know, part of it's just talent. Like it's, it's just magic. You know, Alex is really good at finding categories. That's you know, one of his you know unique abilities. But so sort of like a first draft, you know, often it sort of comes from him. What we do is we like to test that with customers and in workshops. And I know Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach sort of goes through a similar process. And, you know, first, you know, saying, you know, sort of describing a problem. So, you know, how do you understand your customer, right? You know, isn't it hard to know what your customer's problems are, uh, you know, what their pains and gains are? How do you map that clearly in an actionable way? And if people in the crowd are sort of nodding and being like, yep, I have problems with that. That's difficult. We have you know, how are you doing this today? And you hear, you know, all these answers and nobody's really satisfied with that. It's like, okay, well, this is a good problem. Okay. But, you know, step number one, step number two is, okay, well, we've started to create something, which is basically mapping out the elements of that problem. What needs to be paid attention to the second part is really the shape. And so thinking about, is there sort of like a natural process here? So the business model canvas, for example, flows left to right because of Michael Porter's original value chain stuff, which a lot of people are familiar with, where on the left, you sort of got production and on the right, you've got, you know, consumption and the customer. The value proposition canvas, you know, we we when we first made the first version of it, people were like, oh, cool. This is like the business model canvas 2.0. It's like, no, 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 it's not. This is actually for a separate problem. <laughs> so we, yeah. we tried to make it like a circle on a square and it's like, it just looks completely different. Like I can draw it, you know, in a quarter of an inch space, and a business model canvas, and you can clearly identify which is which, you know? So we try to give each tool kind of like a unique shape. One of the the core rules that we like to follow in our content team is that things are mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. So if we're talking about a business model, what we mean there is that every element is its own element. It's mutually exclusive from the other ones. You couldn't put something in one box or the other. A cost structure is very different from a revenue stream right like they're they're just not the same thing like you know how you make money is not how you spend money you know they're they're two different things uh as opposed to you know something more generic uh that like a box that held both of those right um it's sort of needs to be divided and and sort of broken down as much as possible while still being simple and then collectively exhaustive is that we've covered every aspect of this model of this problem right um every aspect that that we feel matters to pay attention to. And other things are perfectly relevant, like competition, you know, it's perfectly relevant. We're not saying don't pay attention to competition. There's great tools for comparing yourself against the competition. Um, but that's not what the business model canvas does. And that's not what the value proposition canvas does.
0: But before I forget the piece on competition, you're bringing it up again. Who, who is your competition? Like when you think about your company in the context of competitors, is it the McKenzie's and the BCG's of the world that, that you're sort of looking at in the rearview mirror, or is it like the lean startup stuff that you mentioned earlier? Like who is your competition?
1: Our competition is business as usual. It's people not changing the way they do stuff, you know, any type of methodology product, anybody who's selling, you know, an idea and a process for doing things better is competing against the way things are done now. Right. Uh that's that's the number one competition. Um by far. You know, we're trying to get people to switch from that, which is already deeply embedded in their organization, more than any other company who's trying to sell them something else that's really our, our number one competition and and making behavior change actually happen and stick around any type of methodology, I think is that's the hardest part about any type of information product business.
0: What is your business model and what's the value prop? Like when somebody comes to you, a prospective client, and then I'll ask you about um, uh, sort of a t- different spin on the question, but let's start here. When when a company comes to you and, and says, okay, strategizer, uh, what's the model and what's really the value prop if we're going to work with you? How do you answer that question?
1: Well, I think, you know, if most people who know about sales would say, you know, that's, that's really interesting. Let me... Let me hear a little bit more about your business so I can tell you about how we'd work with you, right? The reality is that lots of people uh, who buy our stuff have different problems and are you know, solving for a different problem. And in some sense, our tools are fairly horizontal and they work in a lot of spaces. So, for example, if we're talking about a business model and a value proposition, you know, can you think of a business that doesn't have one of those things? right? Like uh, not one that's in business that I know of, uh, anyway. Right. So that's a pretty wide customer base. Um, and not one that's really easy to create a unified value proposition for in terms of the actual pain that they're experiencing. So if, if let's say you're working in, you know, an accelerator in a big company, uh, you know, trying to develop new growth engines because, you know, the, the main product is, is failing and, you know, the company's seeing their disruption happening right before their eyes and is trying to develop the next thing. You've got completely different problems than a consultant who's trying to, you know, more clearly communicate with their client to help get them to results faster. Who's got very different needs than, you know, an academic who's trying to install, you know, really clear conceptual thinking in their students. Who's got really different sort of problems um from the entrepreneur who's rushing around with like like a chicken with their head cut off trying to figure out you know which fire to fight next and you know how to what is the next big strategic goal of the business and then how do we attach that strategic goal to some sort of tactical objective today right like that's those are really really different co- problem spaces and they all are able to use our tools in a very different way
0: of the pool of potential clients that come to you with problems or problem sets What are the patterns that you see that come up over and over again?
1: Can we come back to it in two seconds? So, uh,
0: okay. So uh, let me ask you something else. When, When someone asks you at a dinner party what you do, how do you answer that question?
1: So, you know, Clay Herbert and the sort of like perfect intro thing. Have you heard of that?
0: Yes. Yes, I have.
1: So I gave it a shot and actually, you know, I was, I was at an event and, uh, Someone, uh, I, w- I was working on it and it was pure garbage. And then someone gave me this one and it seems to work pretty good. So it's, we help companies, you know, find or fix their business model. And people seem to like that. People uh, really seems to help people get a foot in the door of you know, what we do. Um, if I'm going to use a few more words, I'm going to say, we make tools that help people find or fix their business model Because when clients come in the door, you know, we're not a consultancy, right? We're not BCG. We're not um, like McKinsey. We don't run on that model. And so I want to answer your business model question, which was, you know, what's our business model in general? And so we have sort of three product lines and they're all built on the methodology, right? So we've got this methodology, which is this way of thinking about stuff, right? It's like, you can basically put it all on paper. And then there's, learning materials that help you learn that so you know we could send in a coach you know to teach a team um, in a big company it's usually type of people who have the ability to hire a coach we could give you some online training you know so you could start you know this afternoon uh, if you wanted to like learning some of these methods and going a lot deeper and understanding the depth to which you could actually use it to get you know much more incredible results Mm -hmm. and then we have some software which is like okay well now i think i've got a sense of how this works I want to use this software to help me actually execute. And then third is, okay, I'm still stuck. I need a person. We, again, we don't have answers. We don't build better business models for people. Um, We help them do it. And so that's, you know, we've got sort of like a coaching network where we'll send in coaches and we're sort of building beyond that as well, as far as kind of like coach programs. So we've got this thing we're working on called the spark box, which is really exciting. And it's basically something, um, big companies are the primary target right now. you know, they sort of buy that. And it has a mix of like online training, uh, in-person exercises and the ability to sort of add coaching time on top of it. If required, if you think about agile as a methodology, you can buy those things from all sort of quadrants of the sort of agile universe, right? You can you can hire agile coaches, you can take agile training online, you can bring in an agile trainer and there's all kinds of software that help you execute agile. If you're interested in using our methodology and you see that it solves problems for you, um, or we've helped you see that it solves problems for you even better. Um, there's these three different sort of areas to draw from to help with your behavior change. So does that make sense?
0: Yep. Makes sense. I mean, there's a lot going on, right? So, so you've talked about the app, the, the online courses and there's seminars and there's training and there's workshops and of course the books. Um, there's three books I think you mentioned that are coming out in 2019. If we were to list these items, let's say in the revenue stream box of the business model canvas um, <laughs> to paint a picture for people, that box <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would, that, that box would get full pretty quick, right? So how are you guys managing all this? And, and give me an idea of the scope of each of these and, and the required manpower to manage it all.
1: So honestly, dude, this is, this is the bane of my existence where, you know, as... I'm sure other entrepreneurs have, have sort of struggled with this where, you know, there's the realities of life and the certainty you have in a vision and a solution and the irreconcilable gap between the two, <laughs> right? Where it's just like, well, we're just going to have to because, yeah, of course, this doesn't make sense, but, you know, we can't bend reality to sort of, you know, work in a different way. And this vision is all that makes sense to us. We actually don't see a different way. And there's sort of this space, you know, between the two where problems arise, right? You know, like, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. And so for us, the problems are we're trying to build three different business lines at once. And we have the the basically, you know, the size of a company of like a, based on like our total revenue that is more akin to a company that has one product line. So that team is sort of divided up and spread across these different products. And it creates a lot of problems, man, with with focus, with ability to be able to execute you know, more quickly with just it. It's it's kind of a nightmare, but it's the only way to get to the other side that we've been able to see. And we've worked really hard to try to find another path. And this is the only one that we believe that there is as far as like the long term vision. And what I'm really excited about is like in the last year, we're starting to see the sort of momentum spin where it's like okay each one of these things is catching up enough and i'm sure every entrepreneur who's you know listening has been in that position in their business where it's like okay it's starting to to catch and the flywheel is turning and now this thing's building momentum on its own um each one of the three flywheels is really beginning to build its own momentum um, at this point in time where before it was just us like grinding away at everything and nothing was turning. And it was a belief that it was all, you know, going to come together based on lots of evidence, right? So this, when I say belief, it's not a hallucination or, you know, it, our vision wasn't a hallucination. It was based on evidence we had seen in the market.
0: And there's, okay, so there's um, divisions with these business lives and and you've got teams of people working on each. There's also a physical divide, right? So you're you're in Canada and Alex is still overseas in Switzerland. And where's the rest of the team?
1: Um, Yeah, remote work, right? whole other topic. Remote work is really exciting. Uh, We have people everywhere. It's cool to be able to get on a call with someone from, you know, Australia or LA or uh, Slovenia or UK, uh, you know, Thailand, uh, all over, right? So Mm -hmm. people are basically everywhere at this point in time. And we were a remote company from the beginning when we, back in 2011, when we were really got serious and Alex and I both said, this is the thing we're going to focus on and grow. We, we actually thought about co-locating and saying, well, let's start a company, you know, somewhere specific. And I remember um, there was a quote that we had read somewhere. And so we looked at L.A., we looked at like or sorry, we looked at um, San Francisco. We looked at Berlin because there's like an awesome startup scene in Berlin. Right. Lots of uh, low cost of living, um, low cost of, you know, uh rent for offices. Lots of European talent is interested in moving there. It's such a cool city. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone wants to co-locate and start a startup tomorrow, Berlin's a cool a cool city. We almost did it. We looked at Singapore, right? The Singapore government was giving away tons of money. We could have gotten you know a million or a couple million bucks uh, to get started. And that would have been really helpful. Mm. Um, it, there, was, there was a lot of options. And at the end of the day, I think it was one quote that we read, which was, entrepreneurs are most successful when they start in a market that they know. And the reasons for that were basically connections to talent, connections to their personal life and their family that, you know, sort of add strength there. And some third thing that I don't even remember, but it was basically the strength of your personal and professional network in an area that you had lived before far outweighed the benefits of moving somewhere that had different stuff than what you had where where you were living. And so we and thought the, of okay of course well, the
0: understanding of the potential group of early customers. Right. If you understand the culture where you are, um probably higher probability that you could test and be successful locally than say a brand new market that you don't understand.
1: Definitely. That wasn't a, a, a concern for us because we were getting a lot of global interest. Like the book had really spread around a lot at that mm-hmm. point in time. So we were looking at people from all over the world. So yeah, we decided to go remote. And you know, remote's been it's been a really I don't know, it's it's it kind of feels natural, I guess. And sort of more and more companies are doing it. I don't know how often you get to talk about remote, uh, on the podcast with people, but.
0: Not a ton actually. So there's a couple of questions. I mean, we don't have that much time left, but I will ask you this about remote work. Um, when you hire talent, how do you find, I don't know, the best of the best for, for your company and your mission um, when you can't physically interview them or, uh, easily meet them in person or, or really go through a local recruiter or anything like that?
1: Yeah. Um, we've been really fortunate in that when we put up job postings, people who know the methodology oftentimes are, you know, sort of passing through our website, they check the team and, you know, they're like, Oh, I, I, this role fits for me. And I love this, this company and, and what they're up to and, and their mission. And that I think passion for the product is something that helps us retain good people a lot longer. You know, there's a lot of really great people too, who just aren't interested in working in an office every day. You know, maybe they've got four kids and they want to, you know, spend more time with them and have more flexibility as far as their work. And, you know, they can make a commitment to show up to two meetings every day, no problem. And the rest of their day is going to be flexible based on what they want to do. So I think, I think any remote company has a real advantage uh, in hiring any type of talent that's interested in a sort of different w- working lifestyle, you know?
0: Where are you posting?
1: So we post on, I love the, the AngelList posting, you know, that one's really strong. Mm-hmm. It depends on what we're posting for. So most of the product-based stuff, um, I find we get our best candidates from AngelList. Um, we post obviously on our own website and our blog and our newsletter. We include, you know, any job openings that we're working on. And as far as going through the interview process, we just really focus on asking questions about what they've done in the past and how they did it to see if that aligns with what we need done in the future and how we do things here. And so meeting in person doesn't necessarily help me do that better.
0: Are there any questions related to how this person might fit culturally?
1: So we've got our... This is, It's really hilarious. We actually didn't even have company values. I don't know about you, but for a long time, we just thought they were BS, like... Why even bother with company values? You put some stuff on the wall and, you know, everyone walks past it every day and we don't even have walls. So how is that going to work? Um, you know, so having the company values didn't make any sense to us. But then when we sat down, I think it was, I don't know if it was last summer um, for the first time, um, Alex and I sat down and, you know, we asked the questions like, you know, if, if we were to take a few people to go set up a new you know office of the company on Mars and represent us and what we're all about who would they be and what would, what do we love about the way that they do their work here? One of the values that they hold, uh, that mm-hmm. we love so much. And it's that really success. helped us. And then, you know, we also ask, okay, well, what has, what have we been successful at? And like, what have we done in the past? That's really worked for us. That's been different. That feels like it was driven by a value. Right. So having those company values We ask a couple questions that feel like they're kind of related to that stuff, but honestly, not that many. Um, It's really much more driven on previous experience and someone's basically tenacity to uh, sort of attack the problem, not how might you do something in the future. It's really how have you performed in the past? And it's more of like a soft heuristic of does this align with these values?
0: Okay, so I'm going to come back to the pattern stuff now, but I'm going to spin it a different way for you. So I'll say that there's like a bit of folklore surrounding the tools Strategizer puts out mostly that this stuff, let's say, is for startups. And that's definitely not the case, but startups is probably a big um, world for you guys. But, but let's get the record clear. Uh, Enterprise is a huge source of business for you guys. Uh, GE, Microsoft, Panasonic, MasterCard. These are all clients that you've worked with. There are many other big enterprises that are on your site. People could look them up. Um, can you share what type of problems or patterns that you see coming at you from, say, the enterprise side of things and uh, the SMB or small medium sized business side of things?
1: Sure, I'll start with enterprise um, because that's really like where our focus is right now. Okay. So if you're in a big company, obviously you know there's lots of processes and stuff in place. Generally, the the problem we see are around innovation and new business and whether that's skills development. So it's either a people problem, right? So someone in learning or, uh, you know, someone in HR excellence, et cetera, has recognized, you know, there's a new world. We need to create new growth engines. And nobody here knows how to do that. You know, we're we're really awesome at executing this business. We we took this great product idea and we friggin' scaled the hell out of it, right? And that's why we're a multi-billion-dollar company. This is why we have ten thousand plus people working here, um, and we're all good at incrementally improving this thing to just take it to the like you know the next and next and next level and absolutely completely optimize it. And then they hit the end of the optimization curve and things start to fall off because there's a natural life cycle of business, right? You know, nothing nothing lives forever, right? Nothing. And the business models, especially, you know, um, value propositions expire. Uh, you know, you don't see any of us um, <laughs> carrying, very few of us are, you know, carrying around a pager now. Well, at one time, you know, that was very hot and it was the best tool to do the job. A lot of business models, you know, from the previous days as well, in terms of pharma and, you know, big industry, the, the record industry, anything based on IP, all of those business models, the way that they were creating and capturing value, completely expired. So they're trying to figure out, well, what's next? How do we do that? But nobody know, there knows how to do that. So we see this skills problem, right? And within that skills problem, if we wanna sort of divide that up, the problem that we see is, okay, well, one, we don't have any processes internally for actually building in new ideas um, or discovering sort of exploring new opportunities, let's call it. Um, we're good at the exploiting part. We have lots of tools and processes and skills for that, but the exploring part is new to us. And Mm -hmm. so we need to figure out how to do that better, right? We don't have a shared language for that. We don't have tools and processes for that. We don't have the skills internally, even the soft skills, like a great entrepreneur who doesn't use our tools has some inherent understanding of kind of, the steps to take. And, you know, they might be using different words and taking slightly different steps. But if you were to sort of zoom out and blur your eyes, they're doing something similar. They're just not using the tools. Mm-hmm. Right. So our tools allow people to shortcut that experience gap of I haven't, you know, it, you know, built a, you know, 10 figure uh, business before. So how do I get there? I was just running this this business unit that was already pretty much there and we grew at 30% in the last five years and that's a great result. And now we're asked to do something completely different. Yeah. Um, so there's this sort of like skills gap problem. And then there's like the really specific uh, sort of like product problem. So how much does a company spend on R&D every year, right? Well then how much do they spend on actually developing the right business model for like a technology that came out? It's like maybe a couple of meetings, right? This is nothing. Um, So to actually admit and say, you know, we're really great at developing these technologies. Okay, we've got a cool technology that seems really exciting. Um, It's within our wheelhouse uh, for lots of reasons, and it's totally fine to innovate from a position of strength like that. But what we see is that, okay, well, how do we turn this technology? It's technology in search of a problem, which a lot of people sort of like sort of poo-poo that idea. but. I think it's completely legitimate. It's just, okay, well, now how do we search for the right problem and how do we adjust the technology where necessary to actually find a really great business opportunity? That's completely fine. Technology in search for a problem is you know not uh, inherently bad. Uh, so helping teams actually go through sort of like a 12-week sprint of saying, okay, well, how do we figure out now what's the best potential customer segment? How do we explore um, different market opportunities for this? The last pattern is visibility, right? And so how do we know out of all the different teams that are doing this who's actually succeeding and who's not? And if you were you know there's there's lots of work that's been done, and you know the our sort of competition in this space is like idea management software and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes time to actually selecting ideas and trying to you know, de-risk them. Um, There's very little transparency into, well, which team is succeeding at collecting evidence to show that this idea will work to get the next million dollars and to get the next $5 million to actually grow it, you know, further. Um, How do we know how risky one idea is versus another? How how do we sort of identify home runs uh, sooner and, you know, accept that within our portfolio of ideas that we're investing in there's going to be a bunch of losses and that's cool right like that's that's the way it works you know venture capital they're not looking for 10 home runs uh, out of 10 investments right they mm-hmm. accept that you know there's going to be maybe one home run a few base hits and the rest are pretty much a wash
0: a right? few base hits if um, they're lucky i, th- I think it's if like, they're
1: lucky right yeah. if they're really really good so let's just let's just say one and one and then eight mm-hmm. um maybe two return flat and then you know the rest are actually losses and you know helping Big companies develop a process for that internally where they can actually um, see, get insight into that and shepherd that process and make decisions and spend money in a way that is you know, efficient um, and, and basically not bet the farm on ideas that are going nowhere, which is what's happening now.
0: So um, I'll give you uh, the last few minutes if you want to go through um, patterns related to small business. If we don't have time, we can just jump right to um, the closing.
1: So with, with SMB, it's slightly different, right? Because usually these companies, a big part of what they're trying to do is maybe they're trying to add a new product to their existing market. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe they're trying to go into a new market with their existing product. Like that's sort of like two common SME, you know, problems where, you know, we've, we've found a bunch of growth in this area and we need to find new growth. And so they have the same problems as far as, okay, well what's really the customer problem in this space and how does our value proposition really fit with that? Um, If it's a new customer segment, are we targeting them in a different way? Are we acquiring them in a different way, right? So there's the same questions that basically a startup would have without any of the stuff around feasibility, right? They can usually build it. They've got a great engineering team or a production team or facility and they know how to build all that stuff. That's not an issue. They've usually done some of the work around. They know how much it's going to cost. There's probably questions around price and uh, viability. And so the patterns are generally, okay, how do we do either one of those two things? And how do we do it faster than what we, the way we were doing it before? Which usually, um, you know, any CEO of those companies will say, yeah, remember that time we tried to do that and it looked really, really bad. And that was the most embarrassing thing I had to report on at the board meeting that year. Um, that's the pattern that we see, you know, in sort of like the SME world.
0: Got it. Well, this has been um, an awesome hour of conversation. I I will just quickly plug your two things that I I just love uh, and use on a regular basis, which is uh, one, the business model canvas and the book business model generation. But where do you want to point users to? Um, Just come
1: to strategizer.com and check out what we got. There's lots and lots of free resources and ways for you to, get involved with the content and see how it works for you.
0: Strategizer, spelled with a Y.
1: Strategy with a Z-E-R or Z-E-R for uh, your American listeners. Yeah.
0: All right. This has been awesome. Alan, thanks for taking the time.
1: Adam, thanks for listening to me jibber jabber about this stuff.
0: This will be great. All right. Thanks, man. Talk soon. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit
1: ScriberBase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time... Make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, got
0: this chair. No, it's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again.
1: On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself?